All right, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Nehemiah 3, but don't stay there too long because we are going to be all over the place today. Um, I would really um, appreciate it if you all took some notes tonight. Just take it if you don't have something to write with or use your phone. Um, but there's lots of information tonight that's good information, and so um, you can just write some of these scriptures down that um, I may go to, but you want to take some notes through this section. We, Brad, can I, do we have the gates slide available with the old city of Jerusalem? Maybe it only has a, as many as all, all the names are on there if we have that one. Um, so just really quickly to get a running start, this is, by the way, this is the longest I have ever been in one chapter in my entire life. I'm getting embarrassed now how long we've been in Nehemiah 3. Um, but we're going to be done with Nehemiah 3 tonight no matter what. So Nehemiah 3, 3, fish gate, or 3, 1, sheep gate, we went all the way around. Uh, basically, it's ten topical messages, so I, I guess I don't need to be too ashamed that I, I, I spent six weeks on ten topical messages. But basically, what it, what it amounted to, it's been a great study, but this is the old gate, or the old city wall of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. Um, and uh, Nehemiah was taken into Babylon captivity. Um, his family was. He, was. he would have been born in Babylon, and then um, he went back. And he was the last crew that went back to Jerusalem to, be, to begin to rebuild the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah comes back. He's a cupbearer of the king. And he's in Jerusalem. This would be after the book of Daniel. And um, Ezra and Zerubbabel had already been back. They rebuilt the temple and, and, and reinstituted worship and services. And then God called Nehemiah specifically to rebuild the gates. Next week we'll see in chapter 4. We'll kind of make that connection because... Um, Nehemiah's call to rebuild the gates is where we mark the, the prophecy of the coming Messiah, one of the greatest prophecies in our Bible in Daniel chapter 9. And so Nehemiah comes back, and um, in a very short amount of time, he, he finishes his work with lots of opposition in rebuilding the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. So they started at the very top here at the Sheep Gate, and they went counterclockwise around the wall, and each one of these gates has a biblical significance that we've identified, um, starting at the top, the fish gate, or the first being the sheep gate, and we identified that as Jesus, and we just talked about our need for Jesus as the center of our lives and our ministries. And then um, in the second gate, moving counterclockwise, the fish gate was evangelism. The third was the old gate, represents truth. The fourth is the valley gate, and there's valleys in our life as believers, and so um, it's very biblical uh, to, to know and understand that, that we're going to face trials in this life. Jesus said, in this life you will have tribulation. We make a very clear distinction between the tribulation that we're going to face in this life, that Paul faced, that many people that we know and, and, and we love have faced tribulation in this life, um, being different from the tribulation that the Bible talks about in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, the, the great tribulation. That's, that's a different, that's the wrath of God. We don't face the wrath of God on this side. Uh, we face the wrath of Satan and of life. And so, but, but you know, um, it's important because some, some churches teach that God's plan for your life as a Christ follower is to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And, and if, you're, if your vision of God is that God's intention and will for you is to always be happy, healthy, and wealthy, then you, you're going to struggle when you go through difficult times. And so, you know, nothing um, against or not saying that God doesn't want us to be happy, healthy, wealthy. But what's taught is that when you're not happy, healthy, wealthy, that it's a lack of faith, that you're outside the will of God, that you didn't um, name it and claim it. You don't, um, you know, and that you, you feel defeated as a Christ follower, where the New Testament is very clear. There's, um, we've talked about this concept quite a bit, but in the New Testament, Paul says seven times, six or seven times, um, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning, and those things that Paul mentions, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning these things. It's funny because those tend to be, one of them is the rapture, one of them is the place of Israel. Um, and so th those are some of the things that the church, one of them is the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's just a lot of the places where the church is divided and are ignorant. And so it's a great Bible study you could do on your own. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. Um, but one of those um, things that he doesn't want us to be ignorant of in Corinthians is the fact that we will face, we'll go through hard things in life, you know, and we'll go through trials and tribulations, and that it, it produces patience. And so then we come to the dung gate, 
and the dung gate was um, at the bottom on the back end of the city. And that represents sin. And then the fountain gate was the Holy Spirit. And then where we are today is at the very last part of the water gate, which is the Word. Now, if they draw your attention, and then we'll get to the last three tonight, and we'll be done. Verse 23. Um, I'm sorry, verse 26. says, Moreover, the Nephilim who dwelt in the Ophel made repairs as far as the place in front of the water gate toward the east gate and on the projecting tower. Now, what's fascinating about this verse is if you really pay attention to that, there's no repairs made to the water gate. They, they made them up to the water gate, and then it goes around the other side. And then all the other nine gates, they mention they, they hang the gates, they do this, they do that. But in the water gate, there's no mention of any repairs to the gate itself. And so the reason is because it represents the Word of God, and the Word of God is infallible, it's inspired, it's inerrant, it's the Word of God, it's exactly the way that God intended it. It sits on your lap exactly the way that God wants it to be there, and the world will come against it, and, and, and very difficult. And, you know, Joe Rogan, who's one of the most popular podcasters in the world, you know, he said from his podcast that you can't trust the Bible because it's been translated so many times through so many different years and versions, and it's a very popular um, secular argument um, that you can't trust the Bible. And unfortunately, the argument is not... Um, excluded exclusive to, to, to the world, that argument is prevalent in the church. That argument is prevalent in every cult and ism and schism in the world. Joseph Smith said the Bible is good in as much as it's been translated correctly. And that basically saying it hasn't been translated correctly and so you can't trust it. And and, and that idea is even within um, you know mainstream Christian denominations. The Methodist and Episcopalian Church in a conference, I don't know how many years ago, um, the, the leadership of the, of the denomination had made a definitive statement that the Word of God was, was not infallible, inspired Word of God. And, and so, again, we're, we're not on that. We believe that the Word of God is infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God, and that it contains everything that we need for life and godliness. And so... So anyways, we spent some time, you guys remember last time I was here, we, we, we really kind of camped on Nehemiah chapter 8, 1 through 8, and there was a church service, and we went through the, the, the children's ministry and those things, and that's kind of where we left off. Um, we, I do want to wrap up the word, but there was a couple of kind of points I didn't make a couple of weeks ago that I'd like to leave not undone as, we, as we're on the water gate. So this is where you begin to flip. So we're going to test your flipping skills. Um, and I'm just going to give you some verses that I want you to write down, be familiar with, that you can know, you can study. The first one is in the Gospel of John, in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Now, this is something that um, you should commit to memory. This particular verse um, is how you check a Bible translation to see if it's a good translation. Immediately, you can just come right. Some, you know, if you see a Bible, you're not familiar with it. If you open it up to John chapter 1, verse 1, this verse has to be right. Because, uh, um, again, those folks that I mentioned already that have, have wanted to replace the Word or said the Word of God is not... One of the things they try to do is they try to take um, the deity away from Jesus. But here in, in John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, they add one letter, and it absolutely changes the meaning of this verse. They add the letter A in front of God, and, and like any Jehovah Witnesses, if you have a Jehovah Witness come over, they have a Bible, a Watchtower version of the Bible, and they add the letter A. The Jehovah Witnesses do it because they don't believe in the deity of Jesus. So when you add the word A in front of God, then it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. But that's not what it says, and that's not how it's translated. So if you see that letter A in John 1.1 in front of that last God, then that's a bad Bible. That's not good. It takes away the deity of Christ. Okay? So in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, um, just in case there was any doubt, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, it's pretty clear there that it's saying that Jesus is the Word. And I know in concept, that's, for me anyways, a little hard to wrap my mind around that Jesus is the Word, but that's what the Word of God says. You know, but also it says God is love, right? God doesn't just show love or have love. God is love. Jesus is the Word. 
and, and it's and it's such um, an emphasis on how powerful and important the Word of God is to our lives. It's everything that we need for life and godliness, and we can't diminish it or take away from it. In Revelation, it says that if you add or take away from this book, God will add um, to your life the plagues of this book. And, and it's a grave warning against those who would add a letter A um, to change the meaning of this of this book or the many hundreds of different ways that, that folks have um, taken away or added to the Word of God. You know, one of the things that's popular right now among some of the churches, I had this conversation with a pastor um, recently enough, and he was encouraging that that um, women should be senior pastors and, and there should be more women in the pulpit and in preaching. And, and I showed him in Timothy where, where God's Word says that, that a woman is not to be a senior pastor. And, and he said, well, that particular verse was dealing with um, a situation that Paul was dealing with in the first century that applied to uh, a, a group that Paul was teaching um, in, in the first century, but it doesn't apply to the church today. That's a Pandora's box. Because if you can say that about that verse, then you could say that about the whole Bible. I mean, Paul wrote, every one of these books Paul wrote to a local congregation and to a local church, but the Holy Spirit has quickened it for us today, and it's the Word of God. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my Word by no means will pass away. And so the Word of God is eternal. You know, one thing that, that will remain through all of heaven from earth is the Word of God. And, and I have a feeling that we'll be able to, to study and, and, and read and know the Word of God for all of eternity and never exhaust it. We're, we're barely able to scratch the surface, you know, in how important right, it is for, for us as Christ followers to know the Word. And then again, you know, Jesus said to the Pharisees, He said, You do err having not known the Holy Scriptures. And I think that's super important because a lot of folks, um, you know, they say they know Jesus or they have, they worship Jesus, they love Jesus, or they, and, and yet they don't know the Jesus of the Word. And that's a salvation issue. You know, we can disagree on speaking in tongues. We can disagree on, on issues and, and, and be brothers in Christ and love each other and those things of timing of the rapture. You know, I'm pretty dogmatic about it. If you have another timing of the rapture, it's, it's, it's okay. It doesn't matter. We're going to this, you know, it's not a salvation issue. But 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 if you get Jesus wrong, that's heaven or hell. You have to have, and the good good fruit's not going to come from a bad tree. The word of God says, you know. And so, um, just again, the emphasis on how important the word of God is. So know that that verse, and then another couple ones before we move on here. Let's go to. Um, actually, you know, I'm just going to do it while I'm in the vein right here, but because of of Jesus being the word, turn with me if you would to Psalms. 138.2. Chuck, Chuck taught this, and it's made an impression on me since I heard Chuck teach it 20 years ago. He calls it the Psalms progression. But what happens in the Psalms, and I won't go through all those verses, just look them up for yourselves or trust me, but God says through the Psalms, He puts a, 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 a tremendous emphasis upon His name. Um, one of my favorite verses, great is thy Great is thy name and greatly to be praised. Great is thy name and greatly to be praised. And so you, you'll have, as you go through the Psalms, these verses, and they mention the name of God in, 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 a, in a high you know, esteem. And great is thy name, greatly to be praised. The name of God, the name of God, the name of God, the name of God, the name of God. As it progresses, you get to Psalm 138.2, and, and look what it says in Psalm 138.2. It says, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name. Again, the name all, all through the Psalms. Praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above your name. And so the Psalms progression, that even in the name of God, and, and I will magnify your name. And we even get an example here in Psalm 138 too. But again, if you started Psalm 1 and you went all the way through, you would see the same thing, that God is magnifying His name. And then you come to this Psalm progression in Psalm 138, and He says, I put my word above my name. It's that important. Right? Big deal. Hebrews chapter 4. You get to Revelation, you went too far. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Just a couple standard like Word of God verses that, again, you should know, be familiar with. Write them down. Um, it says about the Word. It says, For the Word of God is living 
It's powerful. Now, first of all, it's living. Well, it's Jesus is the Word. So, in essence, it's alive. It is alive. And what, what, when it says it's living, um, it, it's able to speak to you. Now, I, I, don't, I don't mean to say that the Word of God, the meaning of what the passage is saying can change. But in context, it, it can speak to you alive. Let me give you an example. In Acts chapter 16, um, Paul there is talking, and, and he says that, um, that he, the verse reads, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to him. Now, in the context, he's talking about him and, and um, Silas, who God had called. They said, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to this group. Um, when I was um, a brand new Christian, fairly new, it was really kind of cool. One of my first, like, amazing, like, goosebumps, Holy Spirit thing was when God called me and God spoke to me from the Word. And and I didn't, I was green. I was, I was very you know, recently addicted and in and, and bondage, and I had come to Christ and uh, was growing in the Lord very slowly at that season. I was still living in L.A. I moved to, to Hemet to get out of L.A. shortly after I got saved. I was still in L.A., and God spoke to me very clearly. You know, you ever hear somebody say, like, not an audible voice, but that clear. That's what it was. Nobody will ever take it from me. I know it was the Holy Spirit. I know that God spoke it to me. I had it confirmed later in prophecy, and I opened the Word of God to that verse, and I read the words concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And God was speaking that to my heart that he had called me to preach the gospel. Five months after I got saved, and about a year later I was in a, I was in a church and the pastor was, was prophesying and I came forward and he put his hand on my chest and he said, what did God tell you? And I began to weep. And I said to preach the gospel because I had no, I knew that God spoke to me and called me to preach the gospel. Now later I became a children's pastor and I, I didn't, I knew what God spoke to me, but I didn't question it because I said, well, God didn't tell me who to preach the gospel to. Like, you know, you assume preach the gospel means adults and big church or something, stadiums or something, but that, but God never told me that. He just said preach the gospel, and I was preaching the gospel to third through sixth graders every Sunday, so I was doing what God called me to do, and eventually. You know, he, he moved me from there. But I spent 15 years there preaching the gospel to to kids. And 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 so the word of God is living, right? Like that verse was God's voice speaking to me off the page. And that's just one example. I can give you many examples where God has has done that. When I moved to Tooele, God did a very very similar thing. And I opened up to Second Samuel and I read a verse. And it was like that. It was, it was, I was reading it off the page. It had a different context and a historical context. But for the moment, it was alive. And it was a word that God was speaking directly to my heart. And he said, I'm going to, he says, I'm going to build you a house. And that's where David, Nathan came to the prophet David. And, and you know, great story, right? The, the prophet Nathan, um, the king comes to Nathan first. And, and he's so excited. And he says, he, says, Nathan, he says, Nathan, David, King David, I want to build God a house. Now, Nathan, as the pastor, the prophet, when his king wants to do something spiritual and for God, he just got excited. And he was just, just like we all would. If one of you came to me and said, I want to go on a mission trip to this place, or I'm going, I'd be like, ah, you know. And so Nathan is just stoked, and he says, oh, king, do all that is in your heart. And then he goes home, and, and, and God, God says, yoo-hoo, Nathan, I didn't tell David to build me a house. Why are you encouraging that? Now guess what you get to do? You get to go back to the king and tell him that his hands are too bloody and he can't build me a house. And so Nathan has to go back to the king and tell him, well, I got a little excited and, and I told you to do all those in your heart, but you can't do it. God says no. But you can't build God a house, but God is going to build you a house, David. And it was a prophecy that through the line of David would come what? Messiah. Jesus. Right? So I read this verse. And it's, 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 again, God is speaking prophecy to me through this verse because the Bible is alive. And, and at the same time, we're house hunting in Utah. And I get to Utah, and we can't find a house. We put a bid in on a, um, uh, a short sale. And, it, and then it finds out that the realtor calls me and says that they're in Overlake, there, there's a second on the house that you bid on, a second loan that we got to work through and figure that out. And then she calls me back uh, three, two weeks later, a week later, and she says, uh, there's a third that we just found. And so the deal fell through. And um, so we came back out, and we had looked everywhere, and our realtor brought us to the house that I'm living in now. And it was, it was finished about six months before we got there. Nobody had ever lived in it before. 
the house that I'm living in now and fulfilled exactly what God said. I'm going to build you a house. And so he built the house that nobody ever lived in that we moved into and we bought that house. Um, so the Word of God is living. Back to Hebrews. Um, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's so sharp that it can pierce even to the division of the soul and the spirit. And then to give it a little fleshly example, he says, and joint and marrow. How sharp does it have to be to separate your blood marrow from your joint? And, and that's how sharp it is. And it, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Like, that's pretty deep, right? Hebrews 4.12. So again, put that one in your bag. Um, know that. And then another one, I always remember this one because of John 3.16. But in 2 Timothy um, 3.16, if you'll turn there with me, 2 Timothy 3.16, just back a couple pages. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, all Scripture, how much of Scripture? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Does that read like what Joseph Smith said about the Bible? Does that verse read that way? That the Bible is good, you can trust it as long as it's been translated correctly? I'm pretty sure this says that it has been translated correctly, that it's inerrant, infallible, that it's sharper than a two-edged sword, that it's profitable for doctrine, that you can, you can make doctrine out of the Bible. And that's what they're saying. You can't, we make our own doctrine that doesn't fit the Bible, but you can't trust the Bible anyway. Dangerous, right? And again, just like the, 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 the guy who was telling me that the prohibition against women pastors is only for the first century, if you can cut that up, you can cut up any part of the Bible. And if you, and if you take the Bible and you say it's only, um, it's only in good as much as it's translated correctly, then who gets to decide what part's been translated correctly and what part is not? And it's really spoken from ignorance. Because the reality is there's 5,400 Greek original manuscripts of the New Testament. So if, if you don't like the way that someone has read the Greek and put it into English, then go get the 5,400 copies and do it yourself. It's not, a, it's not an issue of, you know, what word they use. And then people make, make stupid arguments, too, about the Word of God. Like, um, I use a New King James. So there, there's a faction of folks within our family. Um, you know, that crazy cousin you got at Thanksgiving, you know, that comes, shows up, Cousin Larry or whatever his name is in your family. But we have him in our Christian family, too. And these are the guys that um, they... Only King James only version guy. My cousin's a King James only version guy. Like the only inspired version is the King James. I'm like, do they have Bibles in China? Pretty sure it's not a King James version. Do they have Bibles in you know in every language in the world? So only the English version of the King James version is the right only inspired word of God. And then he brings me this this paper, and it says that between my New King James and the inspired Word of God, the only inspired Word of God, the King James Version, that there's 3,500 different changes. And then I say, okay, here's my New King James, here's your King James, there's 3,500 changes. I'm sure you can point out a couple, show me. Can't do it. Because the changes are, the King James says, you. And the New King James says car. That's a change. The, the King James says four score and 20. The New King James says 80. That's one of his 3,500 changes. Doesn't change the meaning. Not at all. You know, it's not adding the letter A to John 1 1. And so you have, you know, and, and again, yeah, just be careful with that, this version, that version stuff. You know, you can have preferences. I, I, I definitely have some preferences. I see some problems with the NIV. I personally don't like the NIV. That's just a personal preference because the, 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 the places where I think it's translated a little bit funny, it, 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 to me it's not coincidence that they're all surrounding the deity of Christ. And so um, they're, they're weak in that area, and I don't know if those translators, um, whatever. But again, but I got saved using the New King James. When I got, when I got saved, 
I was a new believer. Someone gave me a Bible. Glenn Hobbs, the seven-foot roommate that I had in Hemet, the first Bible I had, he gave it to me. And I used the New King James until in the Bible college. I mean, I'm sorry, I used the NIV. God, I, some of the verses I still have memorized are memorized out of the NIV. And some of those verses are really cool. Where do I? Sometimes I like to go back to the NIV to some of those verses, you know, um, because I've memorized them there and I like the way they're, they're, they're worded. Um, but there's things I don't like about that, that Bible. You know, the ESV, I don't use an ESV, but the ESV is a great English Bible. It's a great English Bible. Justin Alfred, who's the kind of Hebrew Greek scholar for Calvary Chapel, he, his opinion is that the ESV is the best um, Greek to English translation that we have of the New Testament. And so um, some of the Calvaries are switching to ESV too. Pastor Terry in Salt Lake, he switched to ESV. Um, one of my best pastor friends, Pastor Jackie at Calvary Chapel Buell, he uses the ESV, a switch to it from the New King James. I'll never switch, not because the New King James is the best or better, it's because it's just the one I know. It's what I got all my verses memorized in. I know the way he's saying, so I'm happy I'm hanging out right here. So we'll stay in the New King James. Um, all right. All Scripture, I'm just going to read it again. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped, and I have this underlined in my Bible, every, for every good work. Not some good works, but for every good work, you're thoroughly equipped. Peter said that, that the power of God is, is sufficient for all life and godliness. And so it's all we need, you know. Um, you know, I've talked to some people that um, felt like they needed some secular counseling outside of the church, and somebody, and, um, and, and you know, I pointed these things out to them. Well, the Bible says that everything you need for life and godliness is contained within the Word of God, and it's good for doctrine, for, for proof for every good work, equipped for every good work, and that, that, that it is um, sufficient, you know, and that, that it works. I did Hebrews 4.12 already, didn't I? Okay, there's two in Hebrews. Nope. Okay. All right. This is something you can write down to just for fun. Uh, this is, uh, what was that guy's name? Uh, Chuck Nistler. This is how he opened his radio program every day. But the Word of God looks 66 books, 40 different authors, written over 1,600 years, on three different continents, in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, yet it has one theme, zero contradictions, it's historically accurate, it's scientifically accurate, and it's archaeologically accurate. All the coins in the Bible that have been found, all the cities, all the kings, all the stuff that the Bible talks about when there's actually an event where there's a war, and the Bible talks about the war, and you go there, you find spearheads, and you find things that prove the war took place there, and things that, that are, that it's archaeologically, and the, the archaeological state has done more to help Bible scholars than anything else because it just continually, continually. Yeah, I used to post um, every time some new discovery in Israel proved something else out of the Bible, and I'd get excited, I'd post it all over Facebook. It got to the point where there was just so much of it, it wasn't that exciting anymore. There's just so much archaeological and scientific evidence for the Bible. Now, again, the, the competing, the competing, the other religions' books, they, they don't stand up. They don't stack up. The Book of Islam, the Book of Mormon, none of that stuff exists. It just doesn't add up. It's not there. They haven't found there's a big war in, in upstate New York between the whatevers. No evidence. No archaeological evidence for those things um, exists. But yet your Bible is just absolutely full of, of archaeological and historical and scientific evidence for the Word of God. Amen? All right, let's go to the horse gate. Let's go back to Nehemiah just for a quick second. We'll still be all over the place. But after the gate, verse 27, it says, And after them, the Tekanites required another section next to the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Beyond the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. And after them, Zadok, the son of Immer, made repairs in front of his own house. And after him, Shimeah, the son of Shekinah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. So that'll be our next one. So first we come to the horse gate in our counterclockwise deal here. So what do you guys think happened at the horse gate? Practically in history. Well, let's go back. What happened at the fish gate? 
That's where they brought the fish in. Only one gate. They didn't want all your stinky fish coming through the rest of the city. What happened in the old gate? Truth. Uh, what happened in the water gate? They brought water through. So what do you imagine happened in the horse gate? They brought the horses through. And again, that's where the salt, the stables would have been. Um, they would have had to have been prepared for battle. And they would have been, um, if you needed to get on your horse quick and get to battle or get to a defensive position, the horse was there. So they had the stables. They only wanted the horses coming through the horse gate. And so the horse gate um, is where the, the war horses were, were kept. So any, any idea what, what, how we war as Christians or how this could apply to, to our Christian living? So the horse gate represents, write it down, spiritual warfare. Okay? So again, that's, that's another um, aspect of Christian living is that you have to understand, you have to recognize the... Um, the invisible war that is taking place all around you. I'd imagine in this realm, you know, if you could see it, there was a book. Oh, it was brand new in Bible class. It's been a long time. Piercing the Darkness? There was two versions, but yeah. Yes, 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 yes. That's what Piercing didn't tell me. This present, yeah, yeah. This present darkness, Piercing the Darkness. But it was, it was a um, fictional novel. But it was, it was kind of, it was like you could see the battles that were taking place between the angels and the demons. And then they actually even came out with uh, some cartoon movies for the kids that was the same idea. It was angels and demons battling. And, you know, but if you could see into the spirit realm, you know, that, that we are fighting. But just recognize and understand that as Christ followers, and I'm going to show you here in the Word of God, that we face spiritual battles all around us. Okay, you're going to face attacks from Satan. You will face the wrath of Satan. We are not appointed to the wrath. The wrath that we face is not the wrath of God. God is not angry at you. He's not mad at you. He's not wrathing against you. Um, but what we face wrath. Now, there's three general areas. You can write these down that we war as Christ followers. Um, the skinny of it is we war against the flesh, the world, and spiritual battles, principalities and powers. The flesh, the world, and spiritual battles, principalities and powers. So, um, you know, again, I think one of the key ideas is that um, when we recognize, and the sooner we recognize it's a spiritual battle, the better we'll be equipped to fight those things, you know, that we're facing a spiritual battle. And I'll tell you, one of the places where Satan is going to attack your life in spiritual warfare is in your marriages. He's going to attack them. And so the quicker we as husbands and wives can realize that it's a spiritual fight, a spiritual battle, we can overcome it, we can heal, we can fix it, we can, we can get right. And usually one of the tests is that you realize that what you're fighting over is peddly, and it's lame, and it's just nothing, you know, and some missed word or something, you know, you're fighting over a, a tissue or something that turned into a fight, and um, I know it's never happened to you guys, but you weren't at my house last night. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> yes, and she spanked me. No, just kidding. Um, I digress. But they're, they're, they're usually nothing, you know, you can recognize the spiritual battles. And they could be something big, too. But but in our marriages, that's one of the areas. And especially, if, if, you know, as a Christ follower, for the pastors, for the ministers, for missionaries, if, if Satan can destroy my, my marriage, he can destroy my ministry. Because I'll be disqualified for my ministry if my marriage is, fails and is not right. And so, um, you know, it's going to be a place of spiritual attack. And the sooner that Lydia and I realize in, in some instances that what we're facing is just a spiritual battle, then, then we stop fighting each other and we pray and we start fighting with the weapons that God has given us. And as we pray together, we overcome, we realize it was silly. And, you know, and oftentimes, you know, maybe not so much as much today as, as it used to be, but it was like, you know, because I would get opportunities to teach from time to time. But I'll tell you, some of the biggest fights we ever had was like the day before I had to teach. You know, I did teach a big sermon and I wasn't used to doing it. And I was super nervous. And that would be the night. And I just knew it was a spiritual battle. So after a while, it was like on Saturday morning, I'd just I'd get up and say, Hi, babe, I'm not going to talk to you until after I preach tomorrow just in case. No, I'm just kidding. But we don't talk in the morning before Sunday. We drive separate cars to church. And then, you know... Because there's inevitably the Saturday battles of, of having to preach, and, and any pastor will still face them. You know, it's just something that you, you, you don't get you don't get better at, or they don't go away. You just need to get wiser, and you, you start to recognize a little quicker that 
you're facing spiritual battles. When I first moved it to Willa, I can't tell you how many times on a Saturday I called Pastor Joe crying. Like, oh, no, no. He's like, shut up. It's Saturday. You're fine. You're going to be fine. And just, and it just took a little bit to realize, okay, Saturday, facing some spiritual battles. I'm discouraged. I'm depressed. Whatever it is. And, you know, Satan is bummed. All right. So, the horse game. i got to tell you guys first about my uncle's horse. You guys know, um, <laughs> you guys, you guys know my, I, I, maybe not me so much, my dad died when I was young, I was born in L.A., raised in L.A., my dad grew up in Louisiana, on the bayou in a city called Lafayette, Baton Rouge area, his dad was a legitimate alligator hunter, like you see on TV, like Bo Landry, like my grandpa was like speaking English, but you had to subtitle him because you can't understand what he's saying. Um, they're called they're called kunasses is the kind of the term for the French Cajuns the Cajuns there that are the swamp people you know and it's funny because Louisiana has like two completely separate cultures Northern Louisiana like where the Duck Commander guys are from Willie Robertson and those guys completely different like those guys don't have that accent they that's Northern Louisiana but Southern Louisiana where the Cajuns landed um, you know it, it's funny because you know I always he's always said like even on that show, what was the one with the alligator hunters? What was the name of it? Swamp people. Um, and they're, they're, they're speaking English, but they subtitle him because you can't understand what he's saying because his, his Cajun accent is so thick. Well, the coach at Louisiana, at LSU, the football coach, Division One football coach, he's talking in an interview, and his, his Cajun accent is so bad, whoever has to type the subtitles can't even hear him follow what he's saying, and it's just like <laughs> words coming up they can't even follow. My uncle... My uncle uh, Henry, uh, he, you know, the Cajuns say funny things. So when I was growing up, like if you're driving the car with my uncle Henry, and, and he wants you to roll the window up, he'll say, "Crease, put some glass in that hole." What, Uncle Henry? You heard me, boy. I said, "Put some glass in that hole." And then roll the window up. And then uh, he would ask me if I were, if I had been working out. He'd been working out. He said, "Crease." You've been picking up them weights, boy? <laughs> picking up them weights. That's, that's working out in Cajun. Um, but anyway, my uncle had a, had a horse, and um, his neighbor came over, and he, he, he said, hey, I, I want to buy that horse from you. He said, that horse is just exceptional. I want to buy that horse. And my uncle said to his neighbor, he said, he said I'm not selling you that horse to you. He said, that horse don't look too good. And the guy said, you're crazy, man. He said, that's a beautiful horse. And my uncle said, I'm telling you, man, that horse don't look too good. And the guy said, oh, I know what it is. It's money. How much do you want? That's a beautiful horse. And so they made a deal. And my uncle sold him the horse. And um, he came back about a week later. And he was bruised and banged up and scratched up. And he was mad. And he was cussing my uncle up one side and down the other. And he said, you stupid old man. He said, you sold me a blind horse. And my uncle said, I told you that horse don't look too good. <laughs> that, that, that's Cajun for you. All right, that's my horse, horse gate joke. All right. All right, Second Timothy chapter 2. Now, um, just some of these scriptures to start are, are in Second Timothy. I'll just read one. Second Timothy chapter 2. We, we are called in the Word of God soldiers for Christ multiple times. Second Timothy 2.3 says, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. It's a military term. And then it says in verse 4, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Now turn with me, if you will, to First uh, Corinthians um, Chapter 10. Nope, it's not. No, I'm sorry. Wait. Second Corinthians chapter 10. Now, you know, this idea of being a soldier, for some of you manly men, especially you manly men that like to have guns and shoot, thinking I'm a soldier for Jesus Christ and I'm going to shoot him in Jesus' name. Literally, I've had to talk people off the cliff um, in this church who just were like, in Jesus' name, I just had enough. I'm just going to go so-and-so and so-and-so politician and this, and I'm going to fix these problems. And um, 
because like, it'd be much better if you just gave them the gospel. You know, well, the Bible says, like, no, no, the Bible doesn't say that. But it would be an Old Testament idea, but unfortunately Jesus said we have to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us. And the problem is if we went out and just started shooting all the people we don't like and that are doing, doing terrible, it's just create a vacuum and they'll put 10 more people in the same spot. But if we could lead one of those people to Jesus, then, um, you know, what, what an impact that would make. You know, and, and, and we just, and Jesus, and we want to set things right because we do have an injustice meter, and our injustice meter goes off, and we want justice. I get it, but um, we just are not called to that. We're not called to any kind of violence or any kind of thing like that. And, and we are called soldiers, and they're war terms. But look, let's, 2 Corinthians puts it in its context. I had a, um, a Kimber 1911 that I had customized. A friend of mine, a firefighter in L.A., um, he Cerakotes, and, and he broke my weapon down. He Cerakotes, had some scriptures printed on it, and um, 2 Corinthians uh, 10.4 is a scripture that I had put on it um, as a reminder that I have this carnal weapon, but it's a constant reminder for me that that's really not the weapon that God has given me to fight with here on earth um, for, for you know offensive reasons. Defense is a different story, right? And it says in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We do not war according to the flesh. Now, I already told you one of the three points. Now, don't get this twisted. It's in a different vein, right? That, that we um, do spiritual battle, and the three areas are the flesh, the world, and spiritual battle. This, this, is, this is in a different context. We, we do war. We war against our flesh. Because our flesh, your, your flesh is your number one struggle in this life. Your biggest sin, your biggest problem is yourself, is your flesh. It's not your neighbor. It's not the person who did you wrong. It's not your boss who fired you. It's not somebody who's talking bad about you. It's yourself. But this is saying that we don't war um, flesh to flesh because why don't we war flesh to flesh according to this verse? Because Satan is not in flesh. Demons are not in flesh. Spiritual battles take place in the spiritual realm. Not, it would be much easier if all the demons did have flesh and we could shoot them. That would just make it a lot simpler. But that's not the fight that we have. Now look at verse 4 of chapter 10. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. They're not carnal. They're spiritual weapons that God has given us and wants us to fight with. Um, so, so again, the, those are the spiritual fights that we have. So now, um, I'm running out of time, you guys, so... Well, let's do this. Okay, we're going to start with these three points. I'm going to um, talk about the spiritual for a few more minutes, um, but I just want to hit it really quickly. Uh, first one is the flesh, right? In, in Romans chapter 8, in verse number 12 and 13, it says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die spiritually. Okay? Wages of sin is death. So, Paul's going to talk about it. And you can go back. You can study this idea. I think I've covered it, you know, in church. We've been through the New Testament now, so I've covered some of this stuff. But in chapter 7 is where Paul talks about this, this fight that we have is with our own flesh. That, that we're not to live according to the flesh. And the two um, concepts, very simply, is that your flesh is, wants to be sinful and please itself. Your spirit wants to please God. And you're constantly battling between doing what you're... Spirit wants to do and your flesh wants to do. I can remember a youth pastor one time was sharing with his youth group this analogy, and I don't know how good it is, but it's always made an impact on me, and I always remember it. But he was talking about the flesh versus the spirit, and he said, you know, it's like if there were um, two two dogs on your shoulders, you know, a white dog and a black dog, and the white dog was um, in your ear, and he's telling it represents the spirit, and he's encouraging you to do the right thing, and you know, don't steal or whatever in the moment. You know, in the moment, the, 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 the two dogs begin to speak to you and begin to encourage you in a, dire- in a certain direction. And the other one, the black dog, is saying, you know, they steal it, do it. You know, it's okay. Nobody will see you. You'll, you won't get caught. It's okay. It's just a little candy bar. And then as these two dogs are fighting, which dog wins in your life? The dog that represents the spirit or the dog that represents the flesh. And how do you know which one of the two dogs is going to win? And he said, the answer is simple. The one you feed, right? And so, and then, and then you know, that's, that's the recipe that the Word of God lays out for you to overcome sin. Now, in Corinthians, I can argue that that scripture I read in Corinthians says that as a Christ follower, you, you have victory in Christ over your sin. 
you don't have the ability, you don't have a way to claim that, that, that you are stuck under some sin that you can't get out from underneath from. Because you have victory as a Christ follower over those things. And, and, and then um, Paul tells us that to, to overcome sin, that if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. If you walk in the Spirit, so that means every day you're, you're doing spiritual things. You're reading your Bible. You're praying. You're spending time with Jesus. You're filling your life with spiritual things. You know, um, you hang out with a hooker, you'll be a hooker. It, it's, you know, that's, that's the concept. And it is true. And the things that we feed into our body. Now, I'm not saying that all TV programming is bad or all music is, is, is secular or bad. But, but I am saying that those things do affect who you are as a person. And being careful what you put in. As long as you understand, your eyes wide open, that you don't think, you're not that person that says, oh, you know, it doesn't affect me. All these things, you know, the music, the secular music, the hardcore movies, they don't affect you. They do affect you. Okay? If you know they're affecting you, then you can make a wiser decision of, of what you want to put in. Or if you have... Um, where you're feeding the black dog and you're feeding your flesh all the time and then you're struggling in sin, then just, if that's a choice you've made, then just own it. And know that those things are affecting you and then this is why you are where you are. And to walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. Um, num- you know, they, they don't spend $47 billion for a one second Super Bowl ad because they don't work. They do work. Those things do affect you because they affect us, because they affect what we buy and where we go. And those things, they spend, you know, millions and millions of dollars for a 60-second Super Bowl ad. And what we put in does affect us. And so we feed the spirit, not the flesh. Okay, the second one is the world. Um, I'm just going to quote these because I am way out of time now. Well, it's only 7.30. We've got another hour. Look. Um, so... The world, John said, love not the world or the things in the world. Jesus said in John chapter 17 in his prayer, he said that I am in the world, but not of the world. And then he said of you guys, listen, he said, I do not pray, Father, that you would take them out of the world, but that you would bless them in the world, that you would keep them, he said, from the world. So this concept is that the world, we're we're in the world, but not of the world, is what Jesus said. There used to be a famous clothing brand, N-O-T-W, not of the world. So, um, the world is another thing that we war against. And the last thing, and we'll, we'll end here. You guys give me two minutes. We'll be done. Ephesians chapter 6. And then, um, oh, I said we were going to do them all tonight, didn't I? We're only on the horse gate. The other two are highlighted like we're going to get to the east gate. All right, that's okay. Um, Ephesians 6. Now, just know this. This is your staple. I, I actually don't have time to do it. You know, one of the best messages um, that I've ever heard, not ever heard, but one super impactful. And, and I, I'm going to do it one of these days, but I, I can't. But I, I don't know it all yet, but I have the kind of the concept. But I heard a pastor teach Ephesians 6, Calvary pastor, and, and, and in these categories. Look at verse number um, 12, 6-12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, that's one, right? Powers against the rulers of darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. He took verse 12 and he went through the Word of God and he broke out how these different challenges, these different entities that are listed here are separate, um, real-life demons and spiritual warfare that we fight. He recognized what they are and he talked about kind of how the demonic structure is organized because Satan is, um, and his cohorts, they are very organized. And they, they talk about in, um, like, in regions that because Satan is not omnipresent, the demons are not omnipresent, that Satan has assigned different principalities and powers and demons to be over different regions. And I really believe that's biblical. That's, that's the war that we're facing. They're organized. So um, we see in, in, in Revelation that one of, those, one of those demons is called Apollyon, right? He has a name. He's, he's not, it's not the devil. It's, it's, it's a demon that, that is it's a high-ranking, powerful demon that's over that area of Babylon. So, um, so again, and I don't have time to unpack it. I'm trying to just speed through this now so it's not going to make any sense. But basically the skinny is that Satan has a certain principality that's over the region of Salt Lake City. 
He has a different principality that's over the region of Baghdad. He has a different entity, power, principality, demon that's over Hollywood, right? And, and, and the temptations and the, the sins that are besetting Hollywood are not necessarily the same sins that are besetting Salt Lake City, right? And, and so even the, the areas where you're in, um, in Palm Springs, there's a certain proclivity in that area. Is that just because they all that have that proclivity move there and, and be together? Or is there something to that particular principality that oversees that region? And again, I, I don't have time to unpack it all, but super fascinating. But here's the skinny of it. What we, we are covering tonight, what we did cover hopefully, is that we are in a spiritual warfare. And it tells you in Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and, and a host of wickedness in heavenly places. Amen? Amen. So do battle on your knees. Jesus, we come before you and we thank you, Father, that um, you love us. And Lord, you know the cool thing about, about the demons and this demonology and spiritual battles is that, Father, they don't have any power over us, Lord Jesus. That, that he that is in us is greater than he that's in the world. But yet, Father, we recognize that, that they are against us and, and that we have to fight with spiritual weapons and cursing at the, at the moon and darkness is going to do us no good. But calling out in the power in the name of Jesus will change our lives and other people's lives. And so, Father, help us in our marriages to recognize spiritual battles when they rage. Recognize in our workplace, in our homes, in our relationships with our kids and our brothers and sisters that they're spiritual battles. And that, Lord, we could pray and we could pray over those things and that, Lord, you would heal those things. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible says in James chapter 4 that um, if you resist the devil... He will flee from you. But then you know what it says after that? Before I submit to God, that's in the next section. Right before that it says, The devil will flee from you until an opportune time. He will come back at an opportune time. So yeah, we're supposed to battle. And when you battle, when you do spiritual war, Satan will flee from you. And it uses the term Satan. It's not technically right. Satan is not in every one of your battles. He's got bigger fish to fry. But he has demons that are doing that work. Um... But he's going to come back for an opportune time. And that, that, that um, yeah, and then that great verse where it says that if you draw near to God, God will draw near to you. Submit or resist the devil. But just again, recognizing that, that the Word of God is pretty clear that we have a, a, a war as soldiers of Christ to do spiritual battle. Amen? God bless you guys. We'll see you guys on Sunday.